Welcome to Try Not to Blink, a podcast about the ups and downs, ins and outs, news, tips, and tricks of those who live the optometry lifestyle. We'd of course like to thank the amazing people at Valley Contacts who have made this podcast possible. They're makers of stellar gas permeable lenses and the oh-so-incredible custom stable scleral lens. In case you're wondering, I'm on the East Coast. My name is Dr. James Diem, and I am joined by none other than Dr. Roya Habibi. Roya, Thank you. what is Your up? practice in the mirror has really paid off. That was a good one. What are you doing? Me? Yeah, what are you doing? What's up? I mean, nothing. Chilling. Life. Exactly. Just, just so excited to talk about another way to save Save your vision. Save, Save you. your kids. Save your wife. Save your vision. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that? 2010, you know man. It's a solid throwback. Can you believe that was only almost 10 years ago? I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it, but it is still pertinent. Shout in- out to celebrity, none other than Anton Dodson. He gave a local... <laughs> Interview to a news station about an intruder. (laughs) So check out our website and our Facebook page for a little throwback and a good giggle for the day. You got to... Hide your kids, hide your wife. Yeah, it's fun. That's a good one. You got to do that. So we are in March Save Your Vision Month. And uh, what other way to learn about new ways to save your vision than to ask your intern to teach you something? They're so smart. So we are starting a new segment called An Intern Taught Me This. I'm very excited about it, too. And we're going to thank Matt from Kentucky. Matt. Praise he doesn't be. say y'all near as enough, <laughs> but he should. say. And any y'all Kentuckians out there, we, uh, we love your, your twang. If you have a twang, we, we'd like to hear it. In fact, but Matt is a great intern. He comes from MCPHS and he happens to be in my office. And we've been seeing a lot of glaucoma lately, a lot of glaucoma. And so I said, I want to know two up-to-date studies that really have a impact on what we're going to do here in the office. So he actually did a really good job. I totally agree. Really, really good job. Like these are good studies. This isn't like, you know, nonsense. good studies, well bulleted. I mean, I think you should maybe make a cliff notes for eye doctors because I think this is on point. I'd like this kind of cliff note on a day. This is good. Yeah. Like it's what you need to know. And I skimmed for eyes. All right. You First wanna, one. Yeah. Hit it. Let's go. The Eagle study. Okay. This is the effect. You got a cool name. <laughs> I know. Right. A strong start here. Thanks, Matt. Yes. Effectiveness of early lens extraction for the treatment of primary angle closure glaucoma. Okay. So basically, this article looked at using clear lens extraction for angle closure glaucoma for treatment instead of standard medical therapy and or an LPI. And basically, only 20% of the participants in the clear lens extraction group needed any further treatment to control their pressure, as opposed to 61% who received one glaucoma drop uh, in the LPI group. So LPI versus um, the uh, clear lens extraction. The average IOP reduction was one millimeter of mercury less than the eyes with clear lens extraction. And essentially, the study didn't have huge implications for us as optometrists necessarily, but it would be a nice talking point and to give a nice second option beside an LPI. 
Yeah, and you know, I I'm going to I'm going to debate, you know, Matt's point, the last point that it doesn't have huge clinical applications for us. Matt, yes it does. Football. That's a I mean, he had an A on this and now it's a C. <laughs> All the way down to a C. I said it, it out I, loud, it, too. It absolutely has implications for us, right? Because these are the decisions where there are, there are patients that we're seeing that we're treating, and ultimately you know, we need to decide, are we going to, you know, after they had an angle closure and LPI, are we going to go and get the, the lens out, or are we going to treat them with a, a drop? And so Eagle is saying, you know, yeah, no, you could treat them with, a, with getting the lens out, and actually they're going to do a lot better down the road. So far, that's what it says. So. I, I totally second that. I mean, I think that a lot of patients <clears throat> at the prospect of having to, to having to do anything for the rest of their life, even if it is just a quote unquote eye drop, it's a big deal to a lot of people. Plus, we know that a lot of patients that have glaucoma end up either having or developing dry eye disease from their drops um, or the drops make it worse. And so I think that us being able to support the decision for a patient when they are deciding about their options is important. So anyways. And, and now we have a study that, that proves it, you know. So I think that's nice that you could say to a patient, look, you know, your cataracts are mild, you know, but then there's a study, the Eagle study, that showed that, you know, if I give you a drop, your pressure is going to be not as good not as well controlled over time as it would be if we got your lens out. Oh, and by the way, you'll see better at nighttime. You're going to maybe not need your glasses for driving. And so if you look at this study, it actually does talk about some of the quality of life benefits that happen by taking the lens out too. So that's kind of interesting. Absolutely. Anywho, number two. Number two, hit it. Initial intraocular pressure reduction by mono versus multi-therapy in patients with open-angle glaucoma. This is results from the Glaucoma Intensive Treatment Study, or GITS. GITS. So the GITS study is an ongoing study, something you should know about, to determine if monotherapy or multi-drop therapy is more effective at improving visual quality of life and visual outcomes in newly diagnosed patients. This is a hot topic. Um, We know that... uh, it, for instance, in the OATS study, uh, approximately 40% of the patients in the OATS study required two or more drops to achieve uh, goal pressure. So it's not uncommon for people to need more than one drop. So from baseline to first follow-up visit, the mean IOP in the monotherapy group was 26.8% lower than start, and the mean reduction in the multi-therapy group was 46% lower. Significant. This study... So I mean that's that's pretty impressive, right? I mean, right. is that a is that is that a shocker? I'm not no. sure. Um, so this study is still ongoing, and we will have to see what the outcomes are. You know, with the long progression of of the course of the disease and and how it is relevant to us. This again, Matt, with the relevance to us. I don't. Man, <laughs> he's like living in a little optometry school bubble. It's all relevant to us, Matt. I'm just kidding. So this is just a study to be aware of in the future when it is completed. Yes, that is true. Um, it is possible that it might change the way we treat uh, open-angle glaucoma. And I think that's true. Um, and I think what's going to have to correlate to... Okay, so it's saying that, yes, if you use more drops, it lowers the pressure more. Okay. Um, but then it's going to have to correlate to functional damage and, and uh, quality of life and all that good stuff, right? Right. How long is the disease going to go until it affects you? Yeah. That sort of thing. So Sweet. It's, Thanks, it's, Matt. It's, 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 yeah, yeah. Good combo good. starter. I liked yeah, it. You don't, you don't suck. I don't care what they say about you. <laughs> oh. 
Aww. Anyway. Anyway, it's been a hot minute since we've done a cell pod, a scleral yes. lens pearl of the day. Woo. And, you know, people have just been begging and begging and begging us to give us back, give Three, them another pearl. a day. At least. And we're like, whoa, pods. whoa, okay, people, back okay, up. chill. Yes, calm down. So, of course, I decided I'm going to make Jimmy give you a pearl of the day, so <laughs> go ahead. So really, this is less of a cell pod and more of a discussion on, on you know, GP lenses, scleral lenses. Um, so I want to know when you recommend new lenses to patients and why. Okay, so patient comes in, you know, and think about this, you know, we sort of, we sort of have, you know, this, and you and I have discussed, you know, being a little bit better about glasses and rec- making recommendations for lens coatings and, you know, different designs and, and these types of things. Are you talking so, about when you recommend a new, like replacement lens or a new type of Yes. Brand or what do yeah, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any of those things, you know. So, I mean, I think that that's a, a conversation that's happening in the optical world. True. Right. That's a great point. I think uh, at least if we just isolate this conversation to just how often you should replace your lenses, we do that for soft lenses all the time. Right. But right. For, and, and it's it's indicated, right? There's right. FDA approved guidelines for that. Exactly. So why why does that not exist for for gas perms? It's almost like a trophy or a medal that people proudly wear around their neck that they wear their gas perms for five years. or more years. Exactly. Yeah. It's true. So, I think, honestly, I whoever wants to do this next study, I think finding out how long it takes for a lens to truly start warping. Warpage. Yeah, and then how much is warping potentially causing a distortion to the cornea? That might be a good study. So maybe, Matt, you could start doing that. We'll wait. Yeah, we'll rate our results. Get on it, Matt. <laughs> But um, but seriously, what I would say is when I look at the lens and I see a bunch of scratches on the lens or if I'm seeing a ton of new deposits on the lens, that's what I'm going to recommend a replacement. Right. Um, right. Also, typically I like my patients with scleral lenses replacing their lenses every at least one to two years just because that needs to be fit so much more precisely than a corneal GP, in my opinion. Right. I think warpage can cause more problems um, or the cornea or the lens can maybe wear out and oxygen maybe is not diffusing through it as well. But I do feel like most of the time with scleral lenses, they're replacing their lenses more frequently than corneal GPs. But I agree. I agree. I'd, I'd say I'm it, honestly, though, if a corneal GP wearer comes in, everything's perfect, the lens in good shape, and they tell me it's five or six years old and they're seeing 2020 and whatever they want to see up close, how am I going to say that's causing them problem? Their cornea is beautiful it's, and they're right. seeing perfect. And I almost say, yeah, and and you and I both know, like, they might have, like, one little issue, like, with close vision or, you know, like, maybe there's some something about, you know, life that they came in for the exam for, but they're still seeing twenty twenty, and they've had this lens forever and you look at it and it's pretty much fine. You know, there's some little aspect of you, too, that says, don't change anything right don't do it because you're never going to duplicate what they're wearing there there is a conversation i do like to have with people that have really old lenses like if we don't keep this relatively modern i won't be able to make it again because i can't replace a worn out leather shoe (laughs) i just can't the same way oh that's the that's analogy i give every day someone who has an old leather shoe that's worn out that's what an old GP lens is in my mind. I can make yeah. that again. I can make a new leather shoe, but not an old. 
So, so maybe that's the reason. Yeah. Maybe that's why you should every year or two years give them a new lens or, you know, just because, look, you know, it's it's changing your, it's, the lens is changing, your eye is changing, your needs are changing, technology is changing. And if we don't keep up with it, then, you know, we're going to get to a point where your technology, there's nothing I could do to replicate that. Right. That's a good, that's really good. There I, we I, go. Pearl I of the day. Came up with that. So we just came up with the pearl of the day. We talked through it. There you go. Change guys. your lenses. We have a really, really fun and exciting little thing we want to announce to everyone our first true ad. So we're going to just take a quick second to hop into that and let everyone know about our first real sponsor, brought to you in part by PRN, Physician Recommended Nutraceutical. Awesome. So yes, PRN's Dry Eye Omega Benefits is actually the number one dry eye nutraceutical. And uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of PRN and their uh, dry eye uh, products, omega-3 products. It's actually my go-to dry eye omega-3 in my practice. And we have a big dry eye practice, lots of different options. And it's also used by over 5,000 ODs and MDs uh, throughout the United States. It's kind of cool because it's a local company to me they're they're centered out of philadelphia why um, do you I, use their product yeah Just well convenience? very good question i use prn's products because of a study that was done actually published oh, in a very high level uh journal cornea look oh, it up heard we of have it the, heard of it <laughs> we have the uh uh link here uh it actually showed that it is the only dry eye product clinically shown to improve tear osmolarity osdi breakup time and MMP9. So that's more clinical endpoints than any other clinical trial that brought any other dry eye product to market. All of those things in, in one study. Very impressive. That's awesome. Yeah, PRN, it really is. PRN has done a pretty cool thing. So first of all, they guarantee effectiveness in just 90 days or patients receive their money back. But for our listener, for any Try Not to Blink podcast listener, you can receive $200 to learn about PRN in a 45-minute doctor-to-doctor meeting. If you'd like to do this, hop online and schedule a meeting at getprn.com. So 200 bucks, learn about PRN, schedule at getprn.com. Holla. I'm, I'm going to go do it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can, but Holla. shoot, that's a that's a good that's a good uh good offer. Cool. Very good. Well, let's let's hop into our uh interesting topic of the day. I have seen a ton, crap ton Ooh. of social media bait recently about vaccines. Oh yeah. Lots of it's, good like solid belly laughing good stuff. It's political, it's social, it's science, it's all of the good stuff. All the things, yep. And it's all the things. So, you know, and it's particularly of note, I think, in in Washington, right? I mean, this is like, I, I, I'd love to hear what you're hearing about it as somebody who lives in Washington. In the neck of it, Oregon. you mean? Yeah, the, I mean, that's <laughs> it's kind of like a big deal. Like, that's it's true. what we're hearing over here on the East Coast. All you practical <laughs> so, people who listen to the rules, listen yeah, to the recommendations. Yeah, so tell me, what do you... Is is it a thing there? Like, I mean, are you running into? Is it a conversation that you? Hear I mean, luckily, the water cooler. I mean, I guess luckily is not the right word, but I'm not in the parent circle yet, right? So sure, sure. I don't get any of the direct conversation. I just see what's on social media. But um, okay. it's interesting the people who are anti-vaxxers versus who do follow the rules. Um, so I don't. 
all I would say is gossip, right? But okay. I think ultimately I like that, everyone's I like right. Gossip. I do like gossip, but I'll, I'll try and keep this somewhat somewhat legit, um, yeah. without pointing fingers, right? But I think yeah. I think it's it's just highlighting people's how easy it is for things like Facebook to spread a message that's not legit, right? Yeah. Not not scientifically backed. A couple right. people put some stories which are legit side effects, but that's what we know numbers. We know how infrequent those problems happen. And then you're still going to not vaccinate your child and risk putting the whole community in danger. So right. anyway, let's let's get on some of the basics, though, about like just vaccines in general. How are they made? Yeah. Vaccines are so- basically made through taking a virus or bacteria, weakening them because Obviously, we don't want to give a virus or bacteria to someone to cause them no, problems, but we want to make it so they can't re- rep- uh, reproduce or replicate themselves. So there are several different ways, whether it be changing the genes in them, destroying genes, only using part of the virus, um, or actually taking toxins that are released from certain bacteria, purifying, killing it, and regenerating it. So anyway, complicated things, but essentially um, viruses are grown in cells um, and chicken cells. Aren't you a chicken farmer? I am, actually, yeah. So that's that's why I have chickens, not for their delicious eggs or the meat that they To grow produce. viruses. Um, but it's actually to grow, uh, yeah, viruses. I'm working on some very uh, high-level stuff I do. here at the DM farm. And, uh, yeah, that's what's going on. So, Quick anyway. side note. Are chickens really messy and hard to take care of? So messy. Not hard to take care of, but so messy. Mm-hmm. Um, you just got to kind of contain it i mean everybody thinks free ranging is like this wonderful thing no they shit everywhere excuse my language but they do and i mean there's no other way to say it that's what they do so they they do and if you let them out and roam around everywhere they just there's droppings everywhere so you you really can't do that you really do have to kind of contain them a little bit unless you're totally cool with you know walking on it all the time and so that's it is gross so we contain them um that coupled with the fact that you know there's coyote around here and and um hawks and uh foxes and just all sorts of things that love to eat them so you got to kind of keep them contained so Yeah. Anyways, viruses are grown in (laughs) chicken's eggs um, or in human cultured cells. Then they isolate the antigen from the cells used to create it. And then they add different um, stabilizers, preservatives, whatever it is to help make the vaccine. Um, Adjunctive. How do you say that? Adjunct. Adjuvants. Yeah, that that just helps with the immune. It just just something that sort of bolsters the immune response, I guess. And uh, stabilizers increase the vaccine's storage life. So they, there are things, you know, and this is you know part of where the some of the misinformation station comes in is like what ha- you know okay you got a virus okay you got a chicken egg well what else do you put in there right so that's that's kind of where some of the stuff. You know, like preservatives, right? I mean, this is just, it's, you know, so are those good things good or bad? And so people kind of take these things uh, off the rails. So what what do uh, vaccines, 
what vaccines does everybody pretty much get? And I'll tell you what, you know, when you have a little a baby and um, you take them in for their, you know, six-month appointment, three-month appointment, and they're like this fragile little thing, and you're thinking about, like, the future, like, their whole life ahead of them. And, you know, even as a healthcare provider who believes in medicine and research and, you know, evidence, um, you know, there's a little apprehension when somebody takes needles and shoves something into your child's body, you know? Um, So I can see how people get little, you know, uh, queasy about vaccines and their necessity. But vaccines everyone gets or should get are hepatitis B, diphtheria, tetanus, and whooping cough, also known as the D-TAP, polio, uh, homophiles influenzae type B, or the HIB, um, pneumococcal, uh, rotavirus, chickenpox, measles, mumps, and rubella, or the MMR, uh, hepatitis A, HPV, uh, meningococcal vaccine, and uh, also the zoster uh, one is is uh, for fifty plus. Um, there are different state restrictions. So, to clarify, the U.S. federal government has no law requiring vaccines. Okay, but every state has different laws and different specific laws. Uh, essentially, saying that if it, your child's going to go to public school, you need to be vaccinated. Basically, for all the things that we just said, okay, right. maybe some not or HPV, for instance, or of course right. zoster, no, but um, generally all your your basic ones are covered. There are some exemptions, and in, in fact, fifty all fifty states allow medical exemptions, forty seven allow religious exemptions, and seventeen states allow physiolog or sorry, can't say that word, philosophical exemptions, including Washington. Yes, Oregon. and actually Pennsylvania is on Pennsylvania there, too. Pennsylvania is on the list. I was surprised, yes. Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Idaho, Louisiana, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Texas, Utah, Wisconsin. There's no, like, connection that I can see in it. You know, there's it's kind of spans the, you know, blue-red gap. It, it spans, you know... It, geography i don't know so anyway though that's the list we can put it up you can you can google it very easily uh, too but yeah so there was a controversy that i think a lot of folks know about and really where a lot of this misinformation has come from a dude by the name of andrew wakefield who was a scientist in 1998 published a case series which suggested that the mmr measles measles mumps rubella vaccine led to behavioral regression and pervasive developmental disorder a i.e autism the study had a sample size of 12 individuals uncontrolled design and its conclusions were speculative afterwards epidemiological studies were published refuting the link between mmr and autism then the case series was retracted in 2010 admitting that several elements were totally false Uh, wakefield also did not disclose financial interests and he was funded by lawyers who had been engaged by parents and lawsuits against vaccine producing companies finally wakefield um, was found guilty of deliberate fraud um so kind of interesting pretty pretty serious stuff andrew wakefield is actually a british doctor um and he previously was a gastroenterologist and he became obviously an anti-vaccine activist so he was a doctor until he was taken off the board by the uk for all of this misconduct so kind of interesting yeah 
in that 10 years, the damage um, was already done, you know, since, you know, the, the study was released and, you know, until it was actually refuted, you know, this kind of spread everywhere. And famously, Jenny McCarthy um, championed the cause in 2008 after her son was diagnosed with autism. She used her public presence to discourage parents from having their children vaccinated. And that was really... You know, she interestingly became the face of this anti-vax movement, um, and and uh, you know, so so here we are today, and um, we have a measles outbreak in Washington, in Oregon, and and in other states. And so, what is measles? I thought it would be kind of interesting to know what measles is. A lot of you probably don't know what measles is because it wasn't ever a thing in our in our lifetime. It's a contagious infectious disease caused by the measles virus. Symptoms develop 10 to 10, 10 to 12 days after exposure to an infected person and last for about 7 to 10 days. Initial symptoms are fever, greater than 104 degrees, runny nose, cough, inflamed eyes. Eyes, so see, yes. You know, this, could, this is something that can happen. Do you know what us? eye symptoms? Yeah. Believe it or not, you get these little white spots. I've been on the lookout, obviously, since Washington okay. is in the, in the loop. And so you can get white spots known as coplic spots. Probably not on your board since it's not supposed to be an issue anymore. But basically these white spots form um, also in the mouth um, two or three days after the start of the symptoms. And you get a red flat rash, which usually starts in the face and spreads to the rest of your body. Okay. Also includes diarrhea, middle ear infection, and pneumonia. Less commonly but can happen is seizure, blindness, and inflammation. Hmm. Some serious stuff, right? I mean, this is, it's like, you know, some serious stuff. You don't want this, right? So um, from January 1st to February 28th of 2019, that's this year, folks, uh, 206 individual cases of measles have been confirmed in 11 states, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Texas, Washington. <laughs> Majority of people who get measles, of course, are unvaccinated. Traveling uh, will often bring measles from one place to another. Other countries have also seen a rise in measles across the globe. So it's a big topic. And just last week, it like... It was on everybody's Facebook feed, right? There was this new study released on March 4th. That's this year, just a couple days ago, um, that found no evidence that the MMR vaccine causes autism. The study examined 657,461 children. In that group, 6,517 were diagnosed with autism. So what they concluded was that there was no increased risk for the developmental disorder among those that got the vaccine compared with those who had not gotten the vaccine. So it's, it's uh, you know, the bottom line is, you know, there's just no ability to make the statement that there is causation there. There's just no connection. None. So that's what we have. You know, so and and uh, you know, it's it's just I think it's very harmful. Obviously, you know, as a parent of young children who go into schools and um, you know could be put at risk from an airborne illness. Um, let me tell you, it sucks to have sick kids. I got two of them right now. <laughs> I was joking around with Roya. I mean, they have just been pooping up a storm the last couple of days. Maybe they have these. Um, they have they have they a terrible stomach bug. It's it's crazy, and it's just you know like and when you go into the daycare, it's like you know it's like a, a ward. You know, like everybody's <laughs> sick, and 
the the staff is sick and they're like, you know, if your kid's sick, get them out of here. You know, it's it's really <laughs> a big issue when, you know, kids are exposed to sickness because their immune system does not exist. And when they get sick, it's really hard to take care of them. And it, it really stinks because they don't sleep and then you don't sleep. So anyway, um, get your kids vaccinated, damn it. Yeah, right. That's all I have to say. Um, another vaccine that's pretty pertinent, pertinent to us and our jobs is the shingles vaccine. So obviously something that a lot of our patients ask us about, or hopefully you're telling your patients about, um, and hopefully some of you have educated yourself on some of the different reasons that you should be talking to your patients for this, but there are usually confusions about whether, whether the patient should get it if they've already had shingles or if they had the va- uh, had chickenpox as a child, whether it's beneficial or not still. But anyway, Jimmy, tell us a little bit about the vaccine itself. Yeah, so Shingrix is the name. It's the most effective uh, current zoster vaccination. So healthy adults, 50 years and older, should should get it. And this is, this is from the um, company, I'll say. So this is what the company, company says. Healthy adults, 50 years and older, should get Shingrix. You have to get two doses separated by six months apart. Shingrix is more than 90% effective at preventing shingles and post-herpetic neurology, which is a big, bad nuisance. Um, protection stays above 85% for at least the first four years. It's actually recommended that you get the shot every five years or so. Um, there's no maximum age for getting it. You can still get the vaccine if you've had shingles or chickenpox in the past. So that's something a lot of patients will ask me. They'll say, well, I have it. You know, and they come in to get make sure, you know, they don't have, you know, ocular manifestations. They got it on V1 and their primary sent them over, whatever. You know, should I go get the uh, vaccine? You know, I've seen commercials for it. Well, yeah, you could. Um, if you've had shingles in the past, you could still get it. So some side effects you should know about. It could, could cause mild pain, redness and swelling at the injection site, muscle pain, headache, shivering, fever, nausea, um, all the good things. All, all the good things that all the medicines cause. But right. yeah, so it's a good thing to get. It reduces the, the recurrence. I mean, I'll never forget. I was in um, my rotations. I was at a VA hospital and I had a patient come in with some fresh uh, shingles on their um, trunk, on their back. And, you know, a common place to get it. And this guy was just screaming at the top of his lungs how painful it was. And every time I see a shingles patient, I just know, you know, they're they're in for some pain and discomfort over the next couple of weeks, you know, until that, until that resolves. And it could have some serious, you know, complications, vision loss and, and other things. So, um, it's a serious thing. Definitely. I actually had recently a, a good friend of mine whose mom had called me freaked out because she had these shingles. She had the, the rash across her face. She luckily did not have anything in her eye, but, um, she was super concerned. Of course, if anyone has lesions on their face, they're concerned, especially as a woman that not, that's, let me take that statement back. You're just concerned that you're going to have any scarring on your face. I Just as a side note, aren't you really impressed that it usually does not scar on the face? Can you believe that, Jimmy? Yeah. I mean, is that is that like a fact? That I mean, it's not a <laughs> fact, but about. how often do you see lesions <clears throat> all across the face and then it's totally no. gone the next time you see them in follow up? Yeah. Yeah, it is true. It is true. Yeah, little pearl for yeah, some good, patients to get point. them through that thought, but but anyway, she was actually um, she was seeing a doctor, and unfortunately at the time she didn't have insurance, so she was paying all cash pay 
for a really inspect the doctor had sent Valtrex, which we all know is pretty expensive, especially out of pocket. And luckily, it's all better for her. But had she gotten the vaccine in advance, I felt bad she had to just deal with it at all. I mean, your chances of having to deal with that at all is so much less. So definitely recommend it, whether it be your family or loved ones or your patients. There's no reason not to. And right. I mean, I see a lot of patients that ha- are post post zoster that have neurotrophic corneas that have repeated ulcers that are not healing, sometimes ending up needing corneal grafts. So the best we can do to avoid those things, that's what we that's what medicine's all about, right? That's why we're doing all these studies. That's why we're investing all this money into research and understanding more about the body. So do do your part. Yeah. Love it. Well anyway, I think that's about it for vaccines, saving your kids, saving your wives. Saving your saving your neighbors, saving your, saving your vision. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's about it. Before yep. we go, everyone, reach out to us for feedback, questions, story, askholes of the day, anything you want Ooh. us to talk about, either on our Facebook, Instagram, or even call slash text us. Um, our number nine two zero three five zero eight six two two. And of course, we can't depart without saying thanks. Valley Contacts for their support both for their amazing lenses they make and the great people they are to work with extra extra special shout out right now to Jennifer and Chris they just keep us honest keep this podcast running so thank you for putting up with us always mostly with Jimmy but me too Um, and be sure to tune in and listen to our next episode until then try not to blink